Shalom, and uh, we're here for this week's um, class. It's called Make Your Name Count. Okay, you know that this week's uh, Torah portion begins the book of Shemot. Uh, while it's translated as the book of Exodus, nevertheless, um, the Hebrew name Shemot does not mean Exodus, it means names. And uh, we talk about the Jewish people being counted by name. So what is today's modern day issue? Today's modern day issue is going to be what I believe is the most existential question of all. Why does God love me? Now you'll notice I didn't ask if God loves me, but why God loves me. The reason for this is that the question of if God loves me is only a question because we don't understand why God loves me. And because we don't understand why, we question if. Were we to understand why, we wouldn't question if. Now, most often, this goes back to whether we felt loved by our first God. Our first God was actually our parents, the provider to us as infants of life, food, sustenance, clothing, shelter, so our parents were our very first God. If we felt that we were neglected, unloved, or, and even a burden to our parents, then we ultimately feel unlovable. Now, I do want to just point out that to the subconscious mind, it makes no difference if this was real or just a perception. You'll notice that when you have just a perception that you're in danger, even though you're really not in danger, the mind thoughts, the feeling of perception that we are in danger creates a total change in our physiology. Um, the thoughts create the neuroplasticity connections, which then create the chemicals, which then raise our heart rate, our sweating, so forth. The blood goes to the outer, outer organ so that we can act upon fight or flight. So what's really taking place is that there is no difference to the depth of our mind, whether this is a reality or a perception. If we just felt that we were neglected, unlovable to our parents, that becomes reality. Now, when we talk about this, we are going to talk about that a child most often naturally believes that God is right. So if I perceive that I was unlovable to my parent, my parent didn't love me, my parent uh, didn't, they felt that I was a burden, what's going to take place then is that I will make them right, which means that I am unlovable, for if I were lovable, of course they would love me. That's what happens. I just want to also ex um, express that this makes no difference whether I felt completely unloved, or simply that our sibling was more loved or more tended to. It has the same impact upon us. So by the time that we become older, what is the outcome of this? Well, the outcome of this is that we have this sense that we can never be number one in someone's life. In On top of this, this also carries with us because we cannot see ourselves as the number one in someone else's life, we cannot give what we do not have. And thus, in relationships, 
we will struggle with making anyone feel that they're number one in our life, which is a primary issue in relationships. So let's go further and talk about now that we get old and we realize that our parents aren't God, what do we do? All we do is we shift our perception of our original God to the almighty God. And then what happens is, just as I felt that I was unlovable to my parents, so then I'll now carry that to God. By the way, one of the places where you can really experience this, I've come to learn, is in prayer. I'm sorry about that. Is in prayer. Because in prayer, if you, with your primary caretakers, your original God, felt that I'm asking, and whenever I ask, the first answer is immediately no. Well, if I'm used to my parents, i.e., my original God, telling me no, and it's a struggle, then why would I pray to God? Because I now feel the same way about God. God's always going to tell me no. And if he is going to tell, it to tell me yes because I nudge and nudge and nudge, it's going to be with a huff and a puff. All right, take it. And most often, we don't even want that. We'd rather not take it than take it with the, oh, just take it. So we clearly see that what happens is we carry over whatever we experience as a child from our original God, our primary caretakers, and we carry that over to God. And thus, if for whatever reason we've experienced, and I want to introduce you to the concept of ACE. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. If you turn to your handout, and I will now go ahead and post the link to the handout in the uh, comments, you'll see it there. Um, uh, that you'll see, I've posted over here a huge amount of links in the first part of the handout. Feel free to print it up and go ahead and click on those links. Let me just tell you some of them. So number one, the first link is from SAMHSA, which stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. And it talks about the depth of the emotional abuse of childhood adverse adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. We now find that abuse doesn't just mean physical abuse. It doesn't just mean active emotional abuse. It also is neglect. If we feel neglected, we're going to be stuck with abandonment. And that actually we now know from science, it's amazing, go to these links. There is actually this concept of the biology of the brain changes. Children who experience ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, including emotional neglect, will have stomped the growth of their frontal lobe, which is where the power of making decisions take place. We're always acting in survival mode. We will turn to when we feel that we have this adverse childhood experience of emotional neglect, if we feel unloved by a primary caretaker, by our God, we're then going to look either to other humans, other behaviors, other substances to feel lovable. You'll also look over there, you'll see that there are the seven signs to know if you grew up with emotional neglect. You're also going to see over there, I put a link to um, Edward Tronick, it's a YouTube. He is a he a PhD. He's in the, the in the Harvard. Um, he teaches there, 
And he created what they call the still face experiment in which he tells a mother to interact with a young uh, infant. So you have the infant, the toddler in the high chair, you'll see she's reacting to him emotionally, facial expressions, giving feedback, and the child is blossoming and flourishing. And then they tell her, go blank. She turns her head and just looks blank. The child is trying again to create that interaction and watch what happens to that child. How the child ends up screeching just from emotional neglect. Nothing was done to the child other than neglect. There is this horrific, horrific, you can look it up if you want, even though I don't suggest it. It's really horrific. It's called the Harlow Experiment. It happened in Sweden in 1950, I believe, or 1960. They separated infants immediately from their parents, gave them all their physical needs without any emotional needs, by the age of two, most of them died. So if we have a parent that gives us the silent treatment and, uh, you know, we start feeling unlovable, that actually is huge. That ACE defines a lot of what we're going through in our lives. So please, when you have a moment, look up those links. It's just amazing. Okay, now, what happens when we experience this? As I said, we turn to others others being other humans. You'll see sometimes teenage girls get in trouble with boyfriends and then end up doing things they shouldn't be doing simply because they're starving from somewhere to be validated and feel loved. Um, the same thing with boys, the same thing going to drugs, the same thing going to behaviors, whatever it may be. Um, any addiction from food to gambling to sex, it all is there to fill that black hole that we have as children from the adverse childhood experience simply of emotional neglect. You have a parent that gives you a silent treatment. You define that. So what happens is that with this same thing, we've already associated God to our parents. We take it to God. So now let's see what happens. The only one, once we've had that black hole from our parents or perceived that we have it from our parents, but we have it now, then what will happen is that the only one who can fill that hole is God. But God is usually the last one we turn to because we've already defined God as our father, i.e. our parent, ad infinim. So if I was unlovable to my parent or I perceived that, then I'm obviously going to feel unlovable to God. Then why would I turn to a God who already finds me unlovable? So we'll go anywhere else, anything tangible that we can touch and that we can hide who we really are from so that we'll be lovable, not God. But unfortunately, everything else will fail us because of the depths of the black hole of abandonment, which swallows everything. Thus, the only, the only one, capital O, that we can turn to is God. And as I said, God usually is the last one we'll turn to because we already, when we meet God at the first moment, we're carrying baggage into that relationship and already have defined whether God does or doesn't, could or couldn't love me. Okay? So this class is based on a mimer that the Rebbe delivered in 1965 in which the Rebbe explains why God counted us by name over and over again out of love and to show us his love from which we'll understand God's unconditional love to us. Let's go into one introduction. 
I want to talk about unconditional love. Wow. You know, just the words themselves, unconditional loves are so soothing. The mere thought of being unconditionally loved is so healing. And it is healing to the most existential core of our being. Now, I want to share with you, once a colleague told me these words. There is nothing you can do or can not do to make God love you any more or any less. Now, just hearing that, I experienced an amazing paradox. On the one hand, I felt that soothing, healing energy come over me. Wow. But on the other hand, something deeply in me rejected that. Believe it or not, I actually found that to be heresy at a moment. How can you say that? Isn't the Torah, the Bible full with, and if you follow in my statutes, and if you don't, don't we look at and, and hear our sages talking about the, the sinner as despicable, the righteous as lovable? How can I say that there's nothing I can do or not do that would make God love me more or less? And then I realized that my problem with this wasn't just a problem of heresy with the most fundamental teaching of Torah, especially explained in Hasidus, emphasized almost in every one of the Rebbe's teachings that each and every Jew is unconditionally loved like an only child born to a parent and their elders by God. But I actually was struggling with the very notion of unconditional love. Part of me was screeching in my mind, this is Disney World, don't believe in it. It's almost as if I was afraid to allow myself to believe in another non-existing magic and I would get hurt. Unconditional love. It's something that maybe the only way to believe in it is to experience it. And yet the only way to experience it is to believe in it. So what we're going to do now is we're going to try to wrap our mind and hearts around God's unconditional love to us. And through that, once and for all, we can free ourselves from the prison of abandonment. So let the lecture begin. For those who you are joining me for the first time, the way we go is we talk about a very modern day issue, abandonment, unconditional love. We then turn to a mystical teaching of the Rebbe, discuss mystical issues, and then from there, we're going to bring it back to practically how to embrace unconditional love and free ourselves from abandonment. So here's a list of the five mystical concepts we're going to explore. Number one, being counted. Number two, names. Number three, numbers. Number four, essence levels. We'll explain that. And finally, number five, being counted by both name and number. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, this week's Torah portion begins, and I'm bringing to you the first verse. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each man and his household came. Now, all those descended from Jacob were 70 souls, and Joseph was in Egypt. So it starts off with telling you the names, and then verses 2, 3, 4 talk about the names of the 12 tribes, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, and then it closes up in verse 5 with a tally, a number, 70. 
Now, Rashi has a very simple comment, and we're going to see why. Let me first quote to you, Rashi. Although God counted them in their lifetime by their names in Genesis, when Jacob and his children came down to Joseph in Egypt, he counted them again after their death. This week's Torah portion begins post the life of Jacob and his sons, dealing with a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, to let us know how precious they are to him, because they were likened to the stars, which he takes out from beyond the horizon and brings in by number and by name, as it is said, Rashi now quotes a verse from Isaiah, who takes out their host by number, all of them he calls by name. Rashi's question is simple. We already counted and came up with the 70. We actually did it more detailed. Here we only mentioned the 12 sons. There we mentioned everyone, sons, grandsons, granddaughters. Why over here, now after they passed away, when we already did an, a, a very in detailed counting of names and numbers, why does he do it again in the beginning of the book of Exodus? Rashi answers, to show us how precious we are. In other words, there's one thing that we're precious to God. There's another thing that God lets us know how precious we are. In Ethics of Our Father, we talk about the preciousness and the fact that he even lets us know. God didn't count us secretly. He put it in the Torah for us to see how precious we are to him. So we need to understand something. Number one, what is it about the name and the number that makes us see that we're precious to God? Number two, in the verse from Isaiah, when it comes to creation, the stars, we talk separately. In the first half of the verse, we talk about the names. The second half of the verse, we talk about the numbers. Yet Rashi tells us that in our situation, when it comes to us and how precious we are to God, the two become one. The verse tells us the names and by the names counts them to be 70. So we have numbers and names together. What is unique and ultra precious about that? To understand this, we're going to need to go to the concepts of names. What is the concept, concept of names and numbers? Let's start with names. So the concept of names carries within it a paradox. On the one hand, if any one of you, any one of us, was the only living human being in the world, would we, we, would we need a name? We wouldn't need a name. Why would we need a name if there's no one that needs to use it? What does that tell us? that tells us that the name doesn't have to do with our inner essence being, but our outer expression being through which other people can relate to us and we can relate to them. On the other hand, there's a very interesting concept that when someone faints, one of the ways to bring him through to back is by whispering his name into his ear. Why? It's interesting that you will notice that when you're on a phone call and you're like really into the phone conversation, oblivious to your surroundings and your child is pulling on your skirt or your sleeve or your pants, you're so inside, you don't even, you're not registering what's going on. But if someone calls you by your name, you will suddenly like, whoa. These two things, the fact that we have the name which connects with us, the fact that we're brought out of a faint by a name tells us that the name connects with the essence. Our sages tell us that the reason why calling a name brings a person out of a faint is because what happens with a faint is that the faculties and expressions of the soul 
is not shining outwards, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and love, and feelings, and everything. It's not outwards for some, for some big reason that we had. It went back in. We couldn't deal with the expression, the experience, and it went back in, and we fainted. So now that instead of shining outwards, it returned back into the soul, we need something that will reach into the soul and bring it back. And the two things that will do that, both are explained in Kabbalah and Hasidus. One is smell. You will notice that smell is the most powerful point of association. Um, any of you just, you'll notice that when you walk into a kitchen, on Friday and you're smelling the aroma of the cooking of Shabbat, you will immediately be brought back to your mother's kitchen. Smell is a very powerful association. However, today we're not talking about smell, we're talking about names. That name connects with the essence of the soul. So when you call someone's name into his ear when he's fainted, what will happen is that will connect with the essence of the soul where the faculties have returned to and it will bring it back down. So name is a paradox. On the one hand, the name is the expression, the faculties. On the other hand, it's the essence. Now, the way it is by us, so too it is above. On the one hand, you have the concept of the name explained in Kabbalah, a person's name is the garment around the soul from which the soul receives its specific faculties, talents, mission, and it's the way the soul gives it out. So the name really on this level doesn't deal with the essence of the soul. It deals with the descriptive finite faculties and talents and mission of the individual soul. On the other hand, the name connects with the core essence, like we spoke before about fainting. There's an amazing teaching of our sages in the Keter Shemtov. Keser Shemtov is a book which documents the teachings of the Baal Shemtov. Now, to understand this, just know that the Baal Shemtov arrived on the scene of Jewish history when the Jewish people were experiencing a spiritual faint for two reasons, physical catastrophe and spiritual catastrophe. The physical catastrophe. So let's talk about it. The Bakshanta was born in the year 1698. Now, in the year 1648-49, that's known in the Jewish history books as Tach Vatat, because it's the year 5408, Tach 409, Tat. Now, in those times, there was a man by the name of Bogdan Chmelinsky, and he was rebelling against the Tsar. In Russia, he was considered famous. For the Jews, he was considered infamous because after he would conquer a city or a village, he would have his soldiers line up the Jewish people, rape the women, steal their loot, and literally, one by one, behead the men. So there was that physical prosecution which broke the morale of the Jewish people. On a spiritual level, in the year 1666, that is February 1666, is the month in which the false messiah, Shabtai Tzvi, was captured and sent to an island by the Turkish, and they threatened to kill him if he didn't convert to Islam. 
So here the Jewish people, the one hope that has taken us through every part of our suffering, Mashiach will come, Mashiach will come, it'll be okay one day. Here they, so to speak, perceive that they tasted Mashiach, only to find that he converted to a different religion, which means that not only isn't he Mashiach, he isn't even an average Jew. And what happens? They were broken. Their spiritual strength of, of being able to survive because one day Mashiach is going to come was shattered. After this comes along the Baal Shem Tov. What was the Baal Shem Tov's name? Yisrael. What are the Jewish people called? Children of Yisrael, children of Israel. So in that book, it documents that the reason why the Baal Shem Tov came to the world with the name Yisrael was God whispering into the ears of the fainted Jewish people their name. The job of the Baal Shem Tov was to connect the Jewish people with their essence. And thus, while the Baal Shem Tov had a circle of amazing students, which he taught all the Torah to, but in his masses, what the Baal Shem Tov did was he connected people to joy and to faith. He taught people that saying the words of Psalms, even if you don't understand them, with a pure heart is more precious than the greatest arrogant scholarly extrapolation of the Talmud. Because the words of Tehillim from the heart is from the essence of the soul. And that's what the Baal Shem Tov was doing. So the power of the name is the paradox. On the one hand, you don't need it if you're the only one. It's only relating to others, your external side, your flow of individual talents. And so too, the way you give it out. This is why if you look in the Torah, the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, each one of them, we have an explicit reason for their name. For example, if you look back in Genesis, it says that Reuven was called Reuven from the word Re'e, to see. Because Leah said, God has seen my affliction, that Jacob loves Rachel and not me. And thus he gave me a child and I'll call him Reuven. The second child, called Shimon, comes from the word Shema, to hear. And she says, right there in the verse, because God has heard my suffering, he has given me a child. So both Reuven and Shimon are really about the same concept, about God seeing and hearing and acknowledging and dealing with the suffering of Leah. So why in the first one is it seeing and the second one is hearing? And the answer is because the individual talents of each one of these souls, Reuven's soul had the talent and the mission to bring God to be seen in this world. Shimon was to be heard in this world. So thus, each one of them had a different mission because they had different talents. So the name talks about the individuality, the finite faculties. But on the other hand, the name connects with the essence. Now let's talk about numbers. Let's talk about when God told Moses in Exodus towards the end, Parsha Kisisa, to take a census of the Jewish people. Let me read to you the verse. When you take the sum of the children of Israel according to their number, they shall, this they shall give. Everyone goes through the counting, gives a half shekel. The rich shall give no more, and the poor shall give no less than a half shekel. So let's back up a second. Why the half shekel? And the answer is, because if you read in the book of uh, Samuel, you'll see that uh, King David counted his armies, and he counted them directly, and a plague broke out. 
and he was chastised by the prophet Nathan, who told Nathan, who told him, why did you count? Don't you know that when you count, you now bring in the evil eye. You now take away the blessing of God, which lies in that which is hidden from the human eye, and a plague broke out. So we learn this actually from the Torah that God told Moses, don't count. That's why when you'll see people in a synagogue counting a minion, you'll notice that they'll do one of two things. They'll either go, Hashia es amecha, ovorech es nachasecha, orim benasim ad haolam, a verse with 10 words, or very often you'll see people go, not one, not two, not three, not four. It comes from this. Don't count people. Have them give a half shekel and count the half shekels. Now, the reason why the rich don't give more and the poor don't give less is obvious. How are you going to count if they don't all give the same? We need to know that the amount of half shekels is the amount of people. But there's a Kabbalistic reason here. The Kabbalistic reason is because when you count someone, you're looking at their existential value of the essence of the soul. Let's understand this. Are you going to tell me that Moses and the sinner both have the same value on their external finite level of faculties and actualization of actions? No. The only place where Moses and the worst sinner are equal is when you talk about the essence of to be or not to be. So Numbers talks only about the essence. When we count everyone equal, regardless of what their potential and their actuality is, we're talking about their essence, not the outer expression of who they are and what they do. Thus, we're going to talk about here that the number deals with the essence. So we have name and we have numbers, but they're both different. Why are they different? Because numbers, to understand this, we're going to talk about three different levels of essence, which is an interesting paradox because the Baal Shem Tov says the whole point of essence is that if you have a drop of essence, you have all of essence. You see, when something is complex, you have one piece, not the other piece. But when everything is just utter unity and simplicity, a piece of essence is all of essence. And yet now I'm going to talk about three different levels of essence. So let's talk about it. There's level number one of essence, right? So the Jew is truly a piece of God, the essence of his soul. And then we have the faculties, right? The soul has its faculties. It's 10 faculties, the three intellects and the seven emotions. It has its garments, thought, speech, and action. Those are all very different by everyone. But the essence levels, let's talk about them. There's one essence level which denies the details, the finite details. Um, I have in my community a very special entrepreneur, and he once told me, you want to see me get frustrated? Talk to me about details. That's for the manager. Now, by the way, if you want, there's a great book out there by Michael Gerber called E-Myth Revisited, and he talks about this. The entrepreneur, his job is, because it's his business, and it's the essence of his soul that he puts into it, his job is to be creative and innovative and come up with seminal new concepts to grab the market. But to put it into details, that's the manager's job. The manager has a limited investment in the company, a limited responsibility and personality in the company. By the way, if any of you ever read the book, or watched a movie of Steve Jobs, you'll notice that he kept on doing that. I don't care. Make it happen. 
I came up with this idea, you need to make it happen. So when you talk about that entrepreneur, he's the level of essence from which all details come, but don't, don't frustrate him by getting him involved in the details. He wants to give birth to the seminal concept and you guys run with it. That's what I'm paying you for, he says, or she says. Essence that needs to deny any attachment with the details. Okay, then there's another level of essence. Let's talk about level number two. We're going to call it essence ray or ray of essence. Now, to understand this, I want to teach you a mystical, share with you a mystical concept on one of the verses in Psalms that we say in prayer every day. Let me read to you the verse. His hood is on earth and heaven. He raised up a Karen for his people. Hood. Hood literally means splendor, but it also means a ray. Karen literally means a horn. But as you know, Michelangelo made a horrific mistake with Moses and he put horns on him. Why? Because the verse in Exodus says that when he came down from Mount Sinai with the second set of tablets, there was Karen. But that means rays of light. He took it in the literal sense to mean horns. So just that you know, Karen means ray, rays of light, and hod means rays of light. To heaven and earth and all creation, God gives hod. To his nation, he gives Karen. What's the difference? The difference is that hod is a ray in which is a contraction. I give you of what I have, but I don't give you myself. Pull back, give. Now, Karen, like the laser, the Karen or that is where I give myself. It's a ray of essence, an essence ray. Nevertheless, it's a ray. If it's a ray, by definition, it's not essence. It's a ray of essence. So there is a connection between this essence and the ray of essence. However, it's not one and the same. Now there's a third level, which is amazing. The third level is when we connect with the essence, which is the essence of the essence and the essence of the ray. <laughs> so last night when I delivered the class, you know, I had for myself one weak metaphor, but in the middle of the class, another metaphor came to me. So I'm going to share with you both. Water, does it make any difference to the water whether it's flowing freely in the ocean or whether it's in a shaped glass or vase? From that property of water, it makes no difference. Now, I wanted to share that as the essence makes no difference if it's in the essence or if it's in the details. But then last night, I, you know, something came to me, an epiphany while I was connecting with the eyes of those who were listening to me. And uh, very interesting. Let's talk about Rembrandt. Rembrandt is an artist who didn't just do art for a living, right? He was poor and uh, actually his art became priceless after he died. But here's something interesting. Now, whether he did really cut off his ear or he had epilepsy, whatever it is. But one thing we do know, Rembrandt's art was his pouring his essence onto the parchment. Now, what happens? When we talk about the essence passion of Rembrandt, it wasn't just when he was sitting there thinking, oh my God, I got this amazing piece of art. No, that passion carried through 
in every detail of brushstroke and color and what he did and how he did it. So this was an essence that wasn't just the essence of the essence, but additionally, it was equally the essence of the details. Thus, we have three levels of essence. Now, I do want to share with you disclaimer. Um, in this mimer, the Rebbe only talks about one and two. I borrowed three from a different mimer that the, the Rebbe delivered in the wee hours of the morning of Shavuot in the early years. Um, and it's titled, like waters to, like a face in the water, right? Kamayim aponim aponim, so, so too is man's heart. We reflect what the face the person shows us, just as the water reflects back the face that the person shows the water. Over there, the Rebbe talks about the third level of essence, and we're going to talk about it in a moment. We're going to see how deep this really goes. The essence of the details, the third level. But let's go back to our lecture for a moment. Our exploration talks about names and numbers. Numbers is the essence that denies the details. It needs to deny any value which comes from, any worth that comes from what you can do, what you have. It's to be or not to be. Don't tell me how much money you have, what clothes you wear, or what car you drive, or what house you live in, or which neighborhood you belong to, or which club you're a member of. None of that is important. When I'm counting for a minion, I just want to know one thing. Are you going to be here or are you not going to be here? Don't tell me who you are, what you are. It means nothing because right now every Jew is equal. We need 10 individual Jews. That's all we need. To be or not to be. That's the number. Negate everything but the essence. Then there's the name which, in which the name carries the paradox. It arises the faint because it connects to the essence. But the name is ultimately descriptive as well of the individual talents, like the Reuven, the Shimon, and so forth and so on. So the name actually tells you what your talents are and what your missions are, is, what your faculties can do. It's all hidden in your Jewish name. So we have the essence that connects with the faculties, but the faculties is by no means one with the essence. It comes from, it's connected, but they're different. Now, when we talk about this, I want to share with you that the omnipotence of the power of numbers is far greater than the omnipotence of the essence of names. Because this is the ultimate essence, so to speak, we'll soon see, that disconnects from anything but infinite omnipotence. While on the other hand, the name connects with the faculties. So even the essence of name is only the essence that's willing to relate to its finite expression. However, here's, here's the kicker. We have said in the verse that God counts the Jews by name when they go into Egypt. Egypt represents exile, assimilation, temptation foreign desires, obstacles. So here's the problem. Number is omnipotently impotent because if you're just omnipotent but you cannot express that in how you think, in how you speak, in how you act, in how you perceive, in how you feel, of what use is your omnipotence. While names 
on the one hand, it isn't omnipotent, but highly potent because it empowers your faculties, your mission, what you can do and how you do it. So we have the virtue and the fault of name, and we have the virtue and the fault of number. Number is omnipotently impotent, and name is not omnipotent, but very potent. Now, because the Jews are going into Egypt, they're not going to live in their spiritual realm of being shepherds like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and 11 of the 12 sons were. We need to bring the omnipotent power of self-sacrifice in the face of temptation and assimilation into the faculties. Thus, God does for the Jewish people what he doesn't even do for his stars in Isaiah. He puts them together. He counts them by name, number, name, bring it together. And when he does that, what happens? What happens now is that the Jew in his finite surroundings, in his finite level of being, thinking, speaking, feeling, action, he's building it on the self-sacrifice omnipotence of his pentelayid the essence of his soul, chispa de judio. And what happens now? Now we have the omnipotent power of self-sacrifice to stand up against all odds and to make it happen day by day, thought by thought, speech by speech, action by action, perception by perception. That's what happens when you bring these two together. Now let's talk about this. Numbers is essence level one. Omnipotence, don't talk to me about the details. Name is level number, essence level number two. Not omnipotent, but connected to the details. God's gift to us when we go through challenges is to bring one and two together. Now we have the power of omnipotence, ultimate Jewish pride and self-sacrifice into living like a Jew day by day. The outcome of this is that we, when we actualize that gift of God, the omnipotence in the details, we bring essence to unprecedented heights, which is essence level number three. The essence that flows equally, for it is the essence of essence and it is the essence of details. Now, before I go into closing and talking about abandonment, I want to share with you something. I want to give you an example of Jews actualizing the gift of God. And no, I'm not going to talk to you about rabbis and then and Jews and then students and yeshivas. No. I want to talk to you about the Jews in Hollywood. So back in the day, you know, Hollywood was always dominated by Jews. But if you had a Jewish name, <laughs> you changed it. You don't want to sound too Jewish. That was the Hollywood of old. Let's talk about Larry David's series called Curb Your Enthusiasm. Let's talk about Amazon Prime series called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying those things are holy. There's a lot of unholy stuff in them, I'm sure. But you're talking about the essence pride of a Jew 
being carried out in their works of the producers, the Jewish producers in their shows. Carry the essence of Jewish pride into the details of how you make a living. Not only are you proud, but you're sure it's going to get great ratings. That's how sure you are in your Jewish identity. To me, that is one form of the Jews taking their number powers of omnipotence, essence, pride, and self-sacrifice and bring it into their faculties of being awesome producers and actors and actresses. Now let's go into the closing. Okay. So, closing. Let us return to our modern-day issue of getting past our abandonment blockage that we carry from our childhood abuse of reality or perception of emotional neglect being unlovable, being a burden, or whatever. The beauty of essence level number three is that now we each ultimately are the only child of God, truly a piece of God above, not only in the essence part, not only in the pintalayid that we talk about, but also and even in the finite faculty expression level for an essence level number three, the essence is the essence of the essence, and the essence is the essence of the finite details of expression. And thus, all my characteristics, whether it be a virtue or even if it be a defect, is all part of being an essence, a part of the essence of God above. For the essence level number three is where God is everything and everything is God. Not only in my virtues, but even in my defects. Every part of me, every part of you, not just the parts you find lovable, but the parts that you might find embarrassing or even despicable and self-loathing. To God, that's precious. To God, the sinner is as precious on the essence level, as precious as the righteous. Now, we get challenged with that because our parents may have shown us the mistake of what we do is who we are. Especially when you get the silent treatment, you, not what you did, you are unlovable. That's a horrific past. But we need to embrace that in essence level number three, no matter what I do or what I don't do, I can't make God love me any more or any less because every detail of me is a piece of God. Now, if the essence of God is not only in my essence, but in my details, in my characteristics, the defects and the virtues, then now let's read the question. Am I lovable to God? Okay, let's redefine that question. Is a piece of God lovable to God? Is that a question? So once we understand why God loves us, because every nuance of ours is ultimately a piece of his essence, there never is the question, if God loves me. Because now I know why God loves me. I want to close with a verse from this week's Torah portion. In this week's Torah portion, you know, Moses is arguing with God at the burning bush. Don't send me, send someone else. Our sages tell us that what he was saying was, if you send me, 
there's gonna then be a time with exile and punishment until you bring the final Mashiach. So please bring the final Mashiach now, because I know that one day you're gonna get fed up with your Jews in the interim, and you're gonna kick them out of the land, and they're gonna go through the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, and Stalinist Russia, and then goes on and on and on. So um, don't send me, send Mashiach. So he's worried about God one day saying that, you know, I've had it with these guys. So let me tell you what God answers. In this week's Torah portion, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Ra'a ra'isi, seen I have seen. Comes along the great Balaturim, Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Usher, the Rosh, the, uh, we're talking about people and the times of Maimonides. We're talking about that level. He comments to explain the double language. Ra'a ra'isi, seen I have seen. Listen to what he says. I have seen them as they are at Mount Sinai proclaiming we will do and we will hear. And I see them as they are serving the golden calf. And either way, Bonaihem, they are my children. This is God's unconditional love. Regardless what we are doing in the moment, whether we're there standing accepting the Ten Commandments or just 40 days later we're bowing to a golden calf. Unconditional love means there is nothing that I can do or cannot do that will make God love me any more or any less. And thus, ultimately, God says, Bonaihem. Yes, there are times God has to clean us from our sins, but don't confuse punishment slash refinement with not being loved. And our parents may have unwillingly passed us this message. I'm rewarding you because I love you. I'm punishing you because I don't love you. No, 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 not with God. Whether you're standing there and say, yes, God, I am yours. We will do and we will hear. Or whether you're saying, let us make for ourselves a new God, the golden calf. They are my children and I love them unconditionally. Have a wonderful Shabbat.